0: This podcast is brought to you by the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. For more information about its programs, faculty, students, or alumni events,
1: please visit nursing.byu.edu. Guys, it's time to talk about this. We all have the responsibility to combat the stigmas that push hard against those who struggle with mental illness. There's so much we can do to help and support others whose battle normally goes unseen by the eye. But you want to know the best part? As a psychiatric nurse practitioner, you have the skills to really change the lives of those fighting mental illness. Let's find out how.
2: Hey guys, I'm Adia Hansen.
1: And I'm Corbin Smith.
2: Together we are going to explore the nursing profession.
1: With exclusive interviews for nurses working in jobs you want to know about.
2: Transferring info from one nurse to another.
1: This is the College Handoff.
2: and welcome back to the College Handoff. Today we're gonna to start by talking to Dr. Michael Thomas. He's a professor here at BOU and is also a psychiatric nurse practitioner. He'll start by talking to us about becoming a psych NP and what it's like to be a psych NP. He's also gonna tell us about the insane endeavor he took on earlier this year where he ran 100 miles in less than two days. He'll teach us what resilience means to him and how he was able to push himself past the limits of what we all think is possible. After him, we'll talk to Andrea Alfondre. She's a BYU nursing alum who went to New York at the beginning of the pandemic to help with COVID patients.
1: Sweet. So now we are here with Dr. Michael Thomas. He's a professor here at BYU, and he's actually recently has become an associate teaching professor from an assistant teaching professor. And he is the faculty member that specializes specifically in psychiatric or mental health nursing. So welcome to the show oh thank you we're excited to have you here thanks for taking the time and so i kind of wanted to just start off and ask what is a psychiatric nurse what would i do as a psychiatric nurse every single day if i was one as a
0: psychiatric nurse practitioner you take more of a diagnostic role so you're taking the primary caregiving role there where you're identifying what is going on with the patient identifying the specific illness you are prescribing medications to help treat whatever illness that they have if they want to take medications. And then you're also potentially doing therapy and you often are the head of a team or working with a psychiatrist to to head a team in terms of the, the treatment for for a patient.
1: OK, awesome. So with those kind of two paths, How do how would I get to those specific things? Is there a certain point where they kind of diverge and you go a certain way? And where does that happen? How would I decide that? What is that like? So with that,
0: it's all dependent on the level of education. As a registered nurse, you go through a nursing program, they have the associate's level programs or the bachelor's level programs. There isn't a specific specialty at the bachelor's level for psychiatric nursing. You can actually get certified as a psychiatric nurse once you are actually in the field, you get experience, Uh, but that is... That's how you get to be a psychiatric nurse as a registered nurse is go through a nursing program, have that interest, you'll get additional training once you're working. As a psychiatric nurse practitioner, you have to do an advanced degree. The majority of programs now are doctoral programs so there still are some master's programs out there and you do one specifically as a psychiatric nurse practitioner there are some family nurse practitioners that do later focus on psychiatric care but the foundation of education is really nice and kind of important i think to go into a psych specific program the depth of the education is really good in terms of
1: preparing you for for treating people But that that is super cool. I love that. And I'm sure that you've seen a lot of people struggle with mental health and struggle with different kinds of mental health issues. And from your perspective, somebody who's very experienced and and knows a lot about that kind of thing. Why do you feel like it's so important to talk about mental health and to be aware of those kind of things? That's a
0: wonderful question. I think the first thing to know about mental health is it affects our physical wellness, our intellectual wellness, our social wellness, our vocational well-being. All of those things are affected by mental illnesses. And the other thing that I think is really important to understand is we can't really see them really well. We can You can see the effects and how that affects somebody's life, but it's not readily apparent to people. I know for me working in mental health, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is not to judge people. It's really easy to look at somebody who's made mistakes, they're not functioning well, they're doing really unhealthy things and just judge them for it and and just think that they're either a bad person or somebody who's not trying. But I found that if you take a step back and you try to understand what is going on in their life, what has gone on in the past, uh, and, and some of the stressors that they're experiencing that you can put yourself kind of in their place, gain some more empathy and really understand why they're doing what they're doing. And, and so I know that's something that I'm really passionate about as being an advocate is just helping people realize the importance if they do have an illness to get it treated because this can have a profound effect on your life, and then also for people just to be aware of this uh, when they're interacting with others. And so they don't judge somebody who is ill, who who needs help. And, and so those are some of the reasons why I think it's so important to talk about
1: this subject. That kind of leads me to my next question where do you feel like as a psychiatric nurse, as somebody that specializes in this and knows so much That It's part of your job to teach and educate people about the things that can happen to those that struggle with mental health illnesses and how loved ones of those people can truly make an impact and truly help those people that are struggling.
0: Absolutely. I think that is a really important thing. When you have knowledge that, that other people might not, it's really important to share. And mental health nurses have a really unique perspective understanding what patients go through and so i think it's really important that we take opportunities to share that with others i've had the opportunity to present in multiple church settings with both teenagers adults different leaders and i think as a mental health nurse it's really nice to have that understanding to be able to share that with people because it can be really confusing trying to navigate the mental health system There is a huge demand and there are sometimes there aren't enough providers to satisfy that demand, and so it is hard to access services sometimes. So mental health nurses have a really important role in in trying to help people, whether you're at work or whether you're even at home, just to to help people understand more about the illness. Those are things that, that we need to help people realize just how strong they are versus try to tell them that something's wrong with them, that they there's wrong with their character, not wrong in terms of an illness. That's
1: powerful stuff. I love that. And kind of while I was preparing to talk to you a little bit about this, um, I kept having this picture in my mind of the stereotypical quote-unquote therapist. That you kind of go to their office. It's kind of it's a big room, kind of dark, kind of kind of makes you feel a little weird. And they got the long couch that you lay on, and they're sitting by your head, and they got a little clipboard with their legs crossed, asking you questions is being a psychiatric nurse like that, is it not? Tell me about the differences and maybe even similarities if there are any. Okay, that's a great question. So as a
0: registered nurse, it's going to be different because you are you're not going to be doing therapy registered nurses can counsel patients they can educate them regarding different coping strategies and things and so they definitely treat that side of the person but they also do a lot on the physical side so the registered nurse kind of functions in that Area, or if they're in an outpatient basis, they're filling medication boxes, or sometimes they're even part of an outreach team that goes to somebody's home. As a nurse practitioner, you are in more of that traditional clinic setting, but it's not a dark room. You don't have people laying on a sofa or anything like that. (laughs) Uh, You have people just hanging out in a chair. I know personally, I try to present myself as I am, as a human. I'm not. Asking people about their childhood, unless I'm getting doing an initial assessment and we're not focusing on all of those things. Actually, as a psychiatric nurse practitioner, though you can do therapy, a lot of times you're asked to do more on the prescribing side of things because there's a huge need for psychiatric prescribers. But the thing that I find is really interesting is you're trying to put all of the pieces of a puzzle together of what for this person led to them struggling at the level that they're struggling at that point. I I don't cure people, people cure themselves. I'm just somebody that helps along their their recovery process. And so so I really include my patients and make sure that their input is is put into any treatment decision, because they of course have the decision whether they're they're gonna do what I say or not. And they know themselves so much better than I do. And so so yes, it's very different than that kind of traditional person on the couch Um, It's very collaborative, and and it's something that I really love because you get to, to work with some incredible people that are going through some difficult times.
1: And I'm curious to know, with the patients that you work with, how long do you normally have interactions with them? Is it normally one visit, two visits? How many times do you normally see them? It
0: really depends on the person and what is going on. A lot of mental illnesses are chronic conditions. And so when somebody is coming to me, often they actually have tried treatment, sometimes through like a primary care provider, uh, you know, their family doctor or, or somebody else. And so this is something that is significant. And so most of the time I will see somebody over a period of years and it could be, you know, a few times a month, it could be one time every six months. It just depends on where they're at in their stage of treatment. So with that, it really is on kind of an as needed basis, how frequently, if you're really worried about somebody, you're going to see them more frequently. If you're making a medication change, you're going to see them more frequently. But once somebody is on a good treatment regimen, you can go as far as six months, even a year with some people, because uh, people will sometimes be on the same same medications for for years and years and it's actually been fun i have seen people grow up get married uh just it's been a really rewarding experience to to kind of be part of somebody's life in that way and and just to be able to see them thrive and be kind of reach their potential it's something i love about what i do
2: hey everyone we're going to pause the podcast for a second just to remind you that every day you come to campus you should be filling out this survey on the healthy together app just so that we can keep everyone safe and healthy.
1: So now I kind of want to switch gears. Let's switch to this. Um, If I understand correctly, this last February or at the beginning of the year, you completed a monumental, very, very impressive feat where you ran 100 miles in how many hours? It was 32 hours. 32 hours, 100 miles in 32 hours. That is incredible to me. And I want to talk to you a little bit from your perspective, what it was like mentally. And I guess the first question that I have to ask is, why? <laughs> what what was it that made you want to do this 100 miler in less than two days? I, I was running with one of my
0: friends and he started talking about this idea of running 100 miles. And I thought he was kind of just, I thought it was stupid to even run that far. I mean, I couldn't even think about running more than like the 15 miles I'd run at that point. And I was like, oh man, that's gotta be bad for your body. I just couldn't think about doing that. But he was persistent and he eventually convinced me to do a 12-hour race actually on the same course. And so two years ago, I did that. So from there, I... Did the 12-hour race again the next year. And then this last year, just prior to it, I actually convinced my friend, like, we should do the 100-mile race, even though it was something that prior to then, I just couldn't even fathom doing. Having gone over 50 a couple of different times, I just, I thought, well, it's possible now. I, I think I actually potentially could do it. And for me, that was the year where I felt like I had more time to, to train. And so, so that's what led to the idea of giving it a try.
1: But that loop, while you were going around that two and a half mile loop, how was it mentally and how did you overcome that?
0: When I think about pain and discomfort, I think that there are, to put it very simply, there are two different kinds. One is injury pain and the other is growth pain. And growth pain is something that, yes, is definitely uncomfortable, but it can push us to levels both mentally and physically that we never thought we we could achieve before. And because we're uncomfortable, we think that we shouldn't do this anymore, but it keeps us from really kind of reaching heights and and levels of, of things that that we could never find in ourselves before that and, and to really progress and, and become better. And so, so that's, that's what's, yeah, running is it's something that I feel like is a gift from, from running for me. And so as I went through this, this run, I mean, I, I hit those periods multiple times I'd gone the year before I did 58 and a half over 12 hours. And so that's the furthest that I'd run before, uh, but even a little earlier in the race, so I was taking a little bit of a slower pace cause I was trying to get to the the hundred miles. And so about 13 hours in, I hit this really, really dark place. I was about 55 miles into the run and I was walking and walking is super painful on just a race like this because I was facing the fact that I'm going three to four miles per hour at most and just doing the math of how how long it would take to do 45 more miles and just how i felt that felt pretty impossible But it was interesting, I talked to somebody before, and they talked about just taking a quick break. I actually ended up taking a four-hour nap, and it was amazing just how refreshed I was, not just physically, I felt a little bit better, but mentally, that capacity to try again, to push myself again, it came back, and I was able to kind of push through that first initial just wall that I experienced. And it was interesting, because about 20 miles later, I hit another intense wall, and still kind of doubted myself i was like i don't think i can do this 100 miles this is what am i doing why am i trying to do this (laughs) and uh but it was amazing just each step each lap and just people around encouraging you, it just kind of helped you keep on going. And I would have stopped if I was gonna injure myself. Like it's, it's not smart to, to push yourself to a level where, where it's too much and, and you're gonna hurt yourself long-term or anything. But with the running, it's very, very mental. Um, you know, runners are kind of annoying because they say, oh, everybody can run, you just need to try it. But I do think to a level that that's absolutely true. Um, As long as we don't compare ourselves to others, there's always going to be people that are so, so much better at something than us. And I mean, I had an 80 year old man beat me by two hours on this race. He was incredible. But I still feel really happy with what I accomplished because for me, it was something more than I'd done before. And it was progress, even though it wasn't exactly how I wanted that progress to go. It was still a great experience. And I still have that mental fortitude knowing when I feel really terrible and I'm so, so tired and I don't think I can do this, I can still take one more step. And, and that's something that I know will really help in other
1: challenges in life. Oh yeah, and I, I'm speechless, that is, that is incredible. But what is the one overarching or specific lesson that you wish people could learn or maybe understand a little bit better from your experience?
0: I think it really is just that basic principle of not limiting yourself and not being afraid of failing. I think embracing those opportunities to struggle, to potentially fail, and just realizing that even though you failed once doesn't mean that you're going to fail the next time. And so just just keep on trying and, and seeing, seeing where you get to versus putting those limits on yourself uh, beforehand and n- not really knowing what, what you can do. And so I think that's a really big one and and just appreciating your own life journey we're gonna get there and that's that's a beautiful thing
1: yeah and tell me about that joy and euphoria that you felt when you finished that final lap what was that like so it's kind of funny because i didn't feel a ton of euphoria
0: it felt more just like it was a relief it it just was like wow i actually did it i was able to to achieve my goal and that's really what I felt is, I just felt this intense sense of relief. Really, did enjoy being able to sit down and know I didn't have to do one more lap. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Um, but and then just the the gratitude for all the people that that supported me and helped me get there because I didn't do it by myself. And and it's interesting when you talk about lifting others because I had two other friends that were doing the race and you know, after taking a quick break, my focus was what can I do to help them be successful? And I think that's another really
1: wonderful part of our lives. Oh, yeah. No matter what happens in our lives, no matter where we go, what we've dealt with, we can be proud of the outcome because we're still here. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? And um, when it comes to mental health and when it comes to nursing and when it comes to hard things, they can all be interconnected. And each different section or different branch of that tree can support a different branch and that is my favorite part about all of this
0: and just to add to that i think it's so important talking to nursing students to know that struggle is part of the process like that, you are going to experience struggle in life. You are going to question yourself. You are going to think, "I'm not good enough," or "I." You are going to feel failure, and that's okay. That that's part of our human experience. That's not because you're doing something wrong. That's not because you're not capable enough to achieve your goals. It's just part of of what we experience on in this life. And so, I think recognizing that. And being kind to ourselves when when we struggle is so important because it's, I mean, struggle can be beautiful if we approach it in the right way. Or struggle can dig us into this hole where where we just get stuck and, and we feel afraid to, to get out because if I try to do something, what if I fail? And so, so that's one other thing that I would really encourage people who are listening to this just just remember that that you're gonna experience those things I'm 39 years old I still have not like achieved everything that you know that I need to achieve in life I'm still gonna have times in my life where I'm gonna struggle where I'm gonna doubt myself where I'm not gonna know what to do but but that's okay um, that's that's gonna be Be some of that growth pain, if if we can just approach it in a healthy way, if we can recognize it for what it is, and if we can not shame ourselves during those difficult times, but really kind of help ourselves through it, reach out, get the help that we need, the support that we need during those difficult times.
1: Oh, yeah. We are in the middle of a confusing time, a confusing semester, and um, we here are all rooting for you and supporting you. CAPS is a wonderful, wonderful resource here on campus to get help if you feel like you need it. All of the professors I'm sure are here and would be more than happy to talk to you to calm your fears a little bit, especially now. But thank you so much for coming in and talking to us, for teaching us as well. And we are, we're so gracious for all you do, Dr. Thomas. Hey, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. All right, guys, it's that time of year again, the official fall edition of the BYU College of Nursing magazine is officially published. Make sure to pick up your copy either on the first floor across from the NLC or up here in the fifth floor of the Kimball Tower. Read stories about our faculty, the fantastic things that our alumni are doing to change the world, and how our students are preparing to bring the healer's art to everybody across the nation and across the globe.
2: Okay, we are here today with Andrea Alfondre, she was recently on the cover of the nursing magazine, and she went to New York as a nurse to help with the pandemic. So, when did you first go to New York, Andrea? So it was at the beginning of April,
3: where everything kind of started going down. Um, I had a friend; uh, she actually went as a nurse practitioner, and I was I just recently started a nurse practitioner job, and she was the one that kind of told me to go with her. And at the time I was like, there's no way we don't know anything about this virus. I can die. You can die. People are dying. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when she told me I didn't, um, I thought it was crazy. Um, mm-hmm. But then a couple of weeks later, we just kept in contact and then I decided to go.
2: Yeah. And what was it like being in New York at such a crazy time? So when I got there, there was
3: no one in the streets. Times Square. There was not a single person there That's in the middle of the day. And I remember the f- the first or second day I got there, I wasn't, I didn't have an assignment yet, so I had the day off, and I was on on call, kind of waiting to be assigned. And um, I went to Central Park um, just to walk around, and I was there for four hours, um, riding bikes and walking by myself, and I saw maybe seven people, wow. which is unheard of for New York. So yeah. that was for sure, like, that was a really cool experience for me to experience New York that way. But it was at the, at the same time, it was sad because you could feel the heaviness in the air and the people really kind of supporting each other and supporting healthcare workers. So it was a really weird feeling. But at the same time, I was um, ready to help and I was ready. I went there to help. So it was it was a very unique experience.
2: Yeah. And what unit did you work on when you were there? Um, So I was assigned to one of the hospitals
3: there in the Bronx. Um, And once you're assigned to a hospital, you kind of stay there. Um, My contract was for 21 days, but I ended up extending an extra week. So I was there for 20, I was there for 30 days and I worked 27 shifts. Um, And um, so when I got there, the hospital I was at um, initially had two ICUs. uh, But when I got there, there were about five or six. Um, mm-hmm. So I was assigned to a, an ICU that was kind of built overnight, pretty much. It was a mother baby unit that they took all the moms or babies, and they turned it into an ICU just because they had so many patients coming in that needed ICU beds. And I was there for about twenty five or twenty four shifts. So most of my time, I spent it there, and um, and that's my background as a nurse. I, I I told them I wanted to do ICU, and I it was. It was very um, unique <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, because I my background is just I work here at Utah. I used to work here at Utah Valley Hospital and um, the nurse to patient ratio never exceeded two to one, two patients to one nurse. Mm. And I got there and we were having six, seven patients to one ICU nurse. Wow. And these are not your regular ICU patients. These are patients that all of them are ventilated um, with a breathing tube and all of them had four or five, at least, medications, IV medications going in. So, and because this wasn't an ICU, this was a mother-baby unit, we didn't have the equipment. We didn't have suction canisters. We didn't have vitals mm-hmm. in certain rooms. So it was, um, I remember the first few days, so you, they kind of just show you the system, and they show you where their medications are, and pretty much just help what you can, <laughs> do what you can. And, um And, um, but I I think that's what was cool about it is, I think it was really nursing as raw as it can get, you know, it's overall, I feel like everyone that was there tried their best. And that was my experience.
2: Yeah, that, that blows my mind, especially that you worked 27 shifts in 30 days. Like that would be hard on a normal unit, but I know COVID patients, it was,
3: um, so this is our schedule. So our hospital was, or our hotel was a block away from Times Square and um, the Bronx, because there was no traffic, took us about 30 minutes to get there in a bus. So we have to be by the bus at 6, 10 in the morning, um, and then it would take us in. Uh, nurses over there start at 7, but change of shifts was kind of a nightmare because they didn't even know how many nurses they were getting and um, it was just change of shift it would take an hour sometimes because like army nurses will come travel nurses like they had no idea and when I first got to the hospital they told me it's tw- what or 90 or 90 to 95 percent of the nurses in the hospital were travel nurses um, so we would get there around 6 40 Um, you had to go clock in in those old-school machines where you just like put a paper and it would clock you in um, and then you will go to your unit. You were assigned a unit. So I just knew my unit and I walked into my unit and kind of picked up as many patients as you could. Sometimes I would pick up up to 10 patients just because there weren't nurses and people needed to leave. And then you would work all day and then change of shift and at night will be kind of the same. Um, and then we, we will be home at around 830 and then I would shower, eat something and sleep. So our 12-hour shifts were really turned into 14, 15 hours with travel um. time and everything else. Um, so you really had no time to do anything else. People were like, oh, did you eat good in New York? Or did you, you know, you know, no, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I was there one to help and two, I was exhausted mentally and physically. Um, and that was one of the things that I was scared about when I decided to go, because I knew it was going to be 21 days straight. It was mentally hard because everyone was sick. And especially for me uh, in the ICU, none of my patients ever talked to me. They were all intubated, sedated, and paralyzed, some mm. of them. So after a month of that, you're like, Okay, I, I need some interaction here. <laughs> and yeah. I mean we had the other nurses, but everyone was wearing two to three masks and like multiple things in their head. And we were wearing like five different gowns. And so I didn't see a smile for like twenty 27 days. And towards the end, we became really close with the nurses we work with. And then some deaths were really hard on some of us. It was a a really raw um, friendship that kind of developed from that.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, But it was definitely little things like that that you don't realize that are needed were actually very needed over there. Just like a smile or like a patient talking to you saying, hey, I'm doing okay, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. And what what kept you going? Was it just knowing that you were helping people or did you like call your family all the time? Yeah. So um, the
3: hardest person to tell was my mother, for sure. I mean, they live in South America, so that was just they were like, you're going to die. That's what Mm -hmm. they thought. And um, so I told my mom and she's a nurse, too. So she kind of understood and she's like, "Okay, I, I know where you're going and you'll be okay." Um, but she promised me I would call her every day. So I called her and my husband every day, um, and that's all the energy I had before yeah. I crashed to sleep. Um, but, yeah, it was. It, there were very short phone calls just saying, hey, today was a good day or today sucked, and I don't want to talk about it. Um, but it's we're doing okay. And I think what kept me going is from the day I decided um, I wanted to go, I felt this really weird peace that I've never felt with any other decision that big. And, um, so I felt the peace and I told my husband, Hey, I want to go. Um, and he felt it too. Cause I told him, if you're not on board with this, you know, this is kind of a decision we both need to make. Um, and he also felt it. And I feel like my parents do when I told them, they also felt it, you know, and, and I felt like that helped a lot to make this decision. And I, I felt that peace throughout my whole month over there, even when I decided to stay a little bit longer. Um, and if I wouldn't have felt that peace, I would have left because it was it was chaos. It was scary. And um, the first few weeks it was, you could, I mean, you could just sit down and cry because there was, there was so much suffering. But at the same time, to me, I was like, I'd rather be here helping than at home when we were just preparing for the surge, you know, and here it wasn't bad at the time. And also, I mean, praying, you know, I would pray all the time and and just like be like, okay, help me today to feel motivated and to do good. And, and I felt it, and I, I felt happy, and, and I felt that it was what I needed to be doing.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, that's so great. And I love that you really took it like one step at a time. From this experience, how has it changed your nursing now? I think it changed
3: it changed it completely for me because just being in the middle of a pandemic and, and seeing the US, the U.S. system so broken was a little bit scary. And it also made me realize how thankful I need to be for what we have here, you know. And I remember in my unit, I would always be like, oh, complaining about this little thing is not new or this is always breaking, But then after being in the Bronx for a month, I was like, our hospital is top end. And thank you for everything you give us. I've never, I never had to not give a patient something because we didn't have it. Mm -hmm. And that was an everyday thing over there. Um, So I think in that sense, it made me a lot more grateful um, to work for um, hospitals that have all the supplies that
2: I need. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, thank you so much, Andrea, for being here. No problem. Thank you.
1: Well, Adia, we've come again to another conclusion of an episode of The College Handoff, and I don't want to be biased. I try not to be, but I really feel like this is my favorite episode yet. Talking to Michael, not only was, I hope is influential for the people that are listening, but I know for me in the moment when I was talking to him, it almost changed my whole mindset on how I look at hard things. Because I had never imagined resilience as something that is a personal power, that is something internal that I can push through, that there's even more of my potential and there's even more ability within myself that I didn't even know that I could tap into. And, and I'm so ready to go take on the world and the rest of the semester just after talking to him. I'm like pumped up thinking about it right now.
2: Yeah. And I feel the same about Andrew's interview. I love that it was kind of in the same vein of what Michael was talking about she did this insane hard thing, went to New York, worked 27 shifts in 30 days, but made it through, learned a lot, and just made the best of what she had.
1: There are incredible things that you can do with nursing. You can go change people's lives, and nursing isn't the easiest thing. I've definitely no. I've definitely learned that in the last few weeks, but it is something that is incredibly fulfilling. And going and doing something unexpected, like having to go to a hot spot of a pandemic we've never seen before— that's crazy.
2: Yeah, it totally is. And our next episode is going to be great too. We'll have Mackenzie Breedlove coming in. She's a recruiter with Home Instead Senior Care, and she's going to tell us the best way to get a job there as a caregiver or a CNA.
1: Yeah. And before you go, make sure to hit us with a rating and a review. See you guys.